Have any of you ever seen a whale up close? No one? You have? Where were you? San Antonio. Wow. Or even not at up close, but in real life at all? Where were you? Uh, Hawaii. Wow. Well, I haven't. But I imagine that it's the sort of feeling that you might get if you were standing in front of a mountain or a waterfall or the ocean or even maybe a huge building. Of course, none of those are living things the way that a big fish is alive. But there's that strange sense of peace and awe seeing something so much larger than yourself. I always feel small in a comforting way because it reminds me that everything is not up to me. I can't really do very much at all on my own. I'm just too little by myself. There's another angle to this feeling too, whether it's witnessing a geographic or biological marvel like a mountain or a waterfall, a big fish or a big body of water, or a big old building like a cathedral or a basilica in Europe or in Asia or in South America, something really, really old. Those kinds of things make me remember that my life is small and short when compared to the age of the world and the history of humanity. The mountains stood and the water-carved canyons thousands of years before people even saw them. Temples were erected and churches were built over the span of many lifetimes, hundreds of years before I was a twinkle in my daddy's eye. I remember a moment in the basement of one of those worship spaces. I was in France by the ocean, wandering around a monastery that had been built in stages over many different years. Even the newest stage, of course, was several hundred years old, older than the United States itself. So I was there in the oldest part of this compound in a little chapel named for St. Martin that had maybe one small window up near the ceiling line It was mostly dark, and I sat down near the back edge of the room, and as I tried to be quiet, it struck me. People have prayed here for a thousand years. How many people was that? How many prayers had been whispered inside those walls? How many hands had been lifted to God for deliverance? standing on those very stones? How many lives were contained in that air? How many souls had been transformed by God's presence in that very place? I felt the weight of my ego melt away. It's not that the place made me feel insignificant, but it reminded me that the burden of success is not on my The outcome of the world does not depend on our efforts. 
not even on the efforts of all of us in this room or all of the social justice activists in our country, or even all of the impressive, successful, influential people throughout all of time. If you are feeling road weary, and your efforts are feeling stretched, and your energy is used up, I have good news for you. It's not up to you. It's not up to me. It's not even up to all of us together. Once, a very, very long time ago, humanity tried to make it all up to themselves. We tried to build something that would be remembered for all time, to make a name for ourselves, to show the strength of what a bunch of humans together could do. We tried to show our power and our might and our great abilities. It's written about in Genesis chapter 11, and it's called Babel. One of the great temptations and deceptions of our egotistical selves is to let our pride, our own opinions of ourselves and our great abilities, to take over our entire vision, our entire perspective, coloring what we know about the world and what we think is true. Then, as the immense weight of the world and its great brokenness starts to make our shoulders buckle, we double down, we steel ourselves, and we try to push through. We gather together and we huddle against the weariness and the exhaustion and the gathering clouds of hopelessness above. And spoiler alert, it doesn't work. This story is not unlike the story of Jonah that we hear this morning. The book of Jonah is a scant four chapters long, and it's as if the story is really split into four acts. The first, Jonah is saying no to God, getting on a ship, going exactly the opposite direction he was told to go. The second, chapter two and act two, is Jonah in the belly of the big fish, praying for deliverance. Acts 3, chapter 3, we read this morning. And then the fourth chapter, the fourth act, which is not ever scheduled to be read on a Sunday, is when Jonah reacts to the Ninevites' repentance and to God's mercy. It's arguable that the biggest character in the book of Jonah is not God or Jonah himself or the whale or the great big city of Nineveh, but Jonah's pride, his outsized ego. Our reading begins, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. A second time. The first time the word of the Lord came to Jonah, he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. We're not told in chapter one why Jonah chose to disobey God, but it becomes clear later in the narrative that Jonah's pride has taken the wheel driving him in exactly the opposite direction of God's call. On a map, the ancient city of Nineveh is like Mexico, just a few hours south, while Tarshish is like North Dakota. Not only the other direction, but awfully far away. There's no way to pretend that you're headed toward one if you're going the direction of the other. We are now in a house with two toddlers at home, 
one human and one canine. And sometimes our big old dog, Ben, will try to negotiate. I'll tell him, get in your crate. And if he doesn't feel like doing that at the moment, he'll head for his bed instead, as if to ask, well, how about here? Is, is that good enough? And God help me, sometimes I let him get away with it. But the point here is that Jonah is, at the very least, pulling a play from the toddler playbook, asserting himself, rebelling against the boundary that's been drawn, the request that's been made of him, and asking, well, is Tarshish close enough? Can you imagine the look that God gives him from heaven? A little peek over his glasses, as if to say, no, Jonah, the exact opposite of what I ask is not good enough. Your individualism is not going to win here. Your pride is not a match for me. And in God's very gentle, subtle way, he sends a staggeringly violent storm and a frighteningly enormous fish, and Jonah and his pride are swallowed up in the most extraordinary way. Well, I suspect it wasn't quite as romantic as gazing at mountains or as calming as staring at church spires. I wonder if Jonah experienced some of the awe which we might feel when taking in great stone edifices or booming waterfalls. I wonder if he started to realize how small he was, how his pride puffed him up like a balloon with very little except hot air inside of him. He's moved to prayer there in the digestive basement of this great creature with perhaps just a small window of light somewhere up near the ceiling line. He prays, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah realizes how small he is, what a little cog his life makes in the great clock of God's kingdom. This perspective shift away from pride and toward submission to God's will is the key to his freedom. The last thing that he says before God makes the fish vomit him out is, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Stripped of his pride, relieved of his ego, Jonah is now ready to hear what God has to say. Jonah is ready to receive the mission that God has in store for him. Jonah is ready to readily respond to the call that God gives. Then, as we heard already in our Old Testament text for this morning, Jonah prophesies to the pagan people of Nineveh. And they, for their part, eagerly repent. And God reveals the great mercy that is his character. This isn't the end of Jonah's pride, though. In the last chapter of the book, Jonah stomps out of the city God has just saved through him. 
and throws himself down under a shady vine. His pride has made him angry that God forgives. And he mourns the death of his shade bush with much more feeling than he ever showed for the souls of the Ninevites. To me, this is a very reassuring turn of events. The stories of dramatic and complete transformation are inspiring. The moments that forever changed everything is such a desirable outcome. But I haven't managed to have one of those. I have days or even weeks that feel reformed. I have moments and phases that seem like progress. But then I have those other days and those other weeks. The ones that feel like the same old Emily. The same old prideful, disobedient, unsurrendered, rebellious toddler. And apparently, this happens even to prophets even to people who have a whole book named after them in the Bible. And here's the best news. God still uses them. God speaks to them a second time, and a third time, and a fourth time if it's needed. Indeed, isn't the coming of God in the person of Jesus the ultimate instance of God speaking to each and every one of us yet one more time. However big our egos, however persistent our pride, however broken our past or exhausted our efforts feel, or weary our bones are, God invites us to remember that we are only a tiny part of his great plan, his great big plan of his kingdom, of his redemption for this world. God speaks to us in the voice of his son, Jesus, asking us not to change the world or to conquer death, or to do all the things, but just to do what he tells us, to answer the call that he gives to each one of our hearts, to be nourished by his own body and blood at this altar, and then to go out and to proclaim the good news of his salvation, that we and the whole world may perceive the glory of his marvelous work.